This episode is brought to you by Zappos DevShop One. DevShop One provides custom web development solutions for Zappos and now for you as well. For more information on how DevShop One can elevate your web presence, email devshop at zappos.com. Hey, it's Adam Francis here, standing at the edge of another episode of the Zappos podcast. And I've been thinking a lot about ideas recently. Not my ideas, but ideas as things. You know, the thoughts that materialize suddenly in your mind, seemingly out of nowhere. And the strange part about ideas is that even though they aren't real in the material sense, we often think about them that way. And we certainly talk about them that way as real things. An idea starts as something that's super fragile. All the ideas that I always had, I always kind of cross-checked myself because I knew I was going to get way too far ahead. The idea, in my opinion, is the easy part. I have had a lot of ideas. Most of them suck. Sometimes somebody comes up with the ideal and we implement it and it wasn't well thought out. I don't want to be an entrepreneur. It's my worst nightmare. What happens is every once in a while you'll be talking about an idea and someone will say, I love that idea. You have to trust your team and know that when you do hand off your idea, it's going to change and you have to be able to accept that. The nature of an idea is to grow. And as that idea grows, there's more pressure on it. And with the pressure, they get stronger or they die. Ideas, they have their own lives too. Where do they come from? How can we sort out the good ones from the not so good ones? And when you think you have a good idea, even something that seems left field crazy, what is the best way to bring that idea to life? Well, greetings, all you slightly weird, intently humble, change-driven, service-oriented, standard-bearers of Zaponian culture. On the last episode, we heard three different stories, each about the evolution of an idea. On today's edition, we continue to explore the nature of ideas and sit down with Tony, you know, Zappos CEO, Tony Shea, who has pushed so many of the big evolutionary ideas at the company. I don't think that failure is in his vocabulary. That's Tony's longtime friend and former Zappos employee, Fred Mosler, who I recently interviewed for another episode of the podcast. And I figured a little tidbit from Fred would go well here. I guess it's probably like when we decided we were going to go to the moon. Like, how do you go to the moon? We don't know, but we're going to the moon, right? That's how Tony operates. I sat down with Tony in December, and we talked about some of the lessons he's learned working with ideas. I think people like to give a lot of credit to the initial idea, whereas one of the things I've learned is nothing ever turns out the way you planned, and so the initial idea is actually not that important. What is important is really just learning as much as you can about the customer and uh, the initial idea might get you started but it's really about testing out that idea and then constantly adjusting until you actually figure out the right service or product to offer and how did that happen with zappos i mean um what what did you go through here in in you know in the earliest days of the company to figure out whether selling shoes online was a good idea well, the funny thing is that the original idea for Zappos is actually the complete opposite of what we're doing today. 
So the original idea was actually let's not have any inventory, and instead we'll take orders from customers, and when they give us their orders, then we'll send the orders to our vendors' warehouses, and then have our vendors ship straight out of the warehouse because. They're already holding it in their warehouses. They seems super inefficient to set up another warehouse just to have kind of a middleman type of thing.、Uh, and so that was one of those things where the idea seemed great on paper, but in reality, what we found was that we couldn't control the customer experience. And sometimes we would send orders to the brands, and then turns out that their warehouse wasn't keeping accurate inventory records, or they'd be out of something. Or they would ship something, but they'd make some mistake shipping it. And so,、uh, while it was great, we didn't have to hold any inventory or invest in inventory. It ended up not being a good customer experience. So,、uh, for a few years, we ended up doing a little bit of both, where we had vendors send out stuff, which we called drop shipping, and we also had some that we shipped out of our own warehouse.、And、I think it was back in two thousand three we decided to. Get rid of drop shipping altogether, and that's what we're doing today. We only send out shoes that we own the inventory on, and the reason for that is because we can control the customer experience. And when Zappos stopped doing drop shipping and and started doing its own shipping,、um, it's it's my understanding that you initially took a big hit on volume.、Um, somebody at the company told me recently that、uh, Zappos lost forty percent of its business、uh, when you guys made that decision. Uh, I think it was about at the time when we made the decision. Was, we'd been increasing our inventory over time, so I think by the time we actually flipped the switch, it was only twenty five percent of our sales. But that's still a big hit in sales that the company had to take. How did you know at that moment that you were making the right decision, or, or did you, or, or was that just another test, another experiment? Um, it wasn't really an experiment. We already knew from feedback from our customers, so, so we had plenty of data that it was much better to not do the drop shipping. So we already knew what the customers wanted. It was more just following through with that. And what about the idea of selling shoes online? D- did it take a little while for you to know that you were on the right track, that this was a good idea, or did you know it was right away? I mean, how did you make sense that Zappos? As a company was operating in the right space. Yes,、yeah, so I, I think one of the things that、uh, I wish we had known about at the time, but is pretty、uh, well known and popular in the startup community today, is、uh, this concept of、uh, lean startup methodology and coming up with an MVP, which stands for Minimal Viable Product. And、uh, this actually, they just held a conference here on campus and. The founder of the Lean Startup co- Conference and and everything that comes with it.、Uh, well, he he actually has written two books now. I think the second one is called The Startup Way, and the first one is The Lean Startup. And this in, is Eric Reese. This is Eric Reese, and in the first one, he talks about how in his prior company he、uh, and his his company spent I don't know two or three years developing this software program and. Uh, did tons of coding and so on, but they never talked to customers or tested out any of the ideas on customers. And finally, after two or three years, they were ready for this big launch, and they、uh, had this page on their website where people could click to、uh, download this thing they've been working two or three years on. 
And as it turns out, nobody even bothered to click on it because nobody wanted what they had built in the first place. And so you know, he started doing the math of, I don't know how much two or three years cost, but probably millions of dollars and salaries and so on, um, versus he could have learned that no one wanted to click to download something just by putting up a web page that did nothing and said, hey, do you want to download this and click here and see how many people clicked? So uh, I think it was through that that it, he kind of got inspired with this idea of what is the cheapest way to test out a hypothesis and really taking a scientific approach to ideas and, and without being too emotionally attached to the idea. Uh, there's, there's a quote, and I forget if it's from the book or somewhere else, but like you want to be attached and passionate about problems that you're trying to solve but not necessarily to the solutions that you might initially come up with. Uh, that's a long-winded way of going back to how do we know in the early days if shoes would sell online? Well, the expensive way would have been, well, if we set up all these warehouses and spent all this money building these brand relationships and, and then uh, bought millions of dollars worth of shoes and then opened our doors for business several years later and, and crossed our fingers and hoped something would sell. Uh, that's a very long, expensive way. And what Nick Swinburne, the founder of Zappos, did was actually a super cheap way. He just went down to the local shoe store, took pictures of all the shoes there, and then put them on the website. And then when the customer ordered, he would walk down to the shoe store, buy it at full price, and then ship it to the customer. And yes, we lost money on every single sale in the early days, but it was a much cheaper way to prove that this was something that added enough you know, value that customers cared about and that there was a viable business there instead of just making a big bet. Okay. So in that sense, you knew fairly early on that, that this was a good idea. Yeah. Are there other ideas that you've had over the years that you were attracted to initially, but then through the development of that idea, you learn things about it that made it less shiny to you, less attractive to you? Um, I think probably the most important skill you want to develop as an entrepreneur, whether it's, you know, officially an entrepreneur out on your own or, uh, you know, internal entrepreneur, like what we're trying to have an ecosystem of here at Zappos, I think the most important thing is to be agnostic about the ideas themselves and really just view everything as an experiment. And so you might have a hypothesis, but it's more important to have lots of ideas that you can test very easily and cheaply and quickly and don't be attached to the result as long as you learn from each one. And the more experiments you can do, the better. And when you find that the customer responds to something then that'll open up a whole another set of doors for potential you know, ideas or experiments. And then it just keeps going from there. And it's not going to be a straight, linear, direct path. It's going to be a very roundabout thing. And, and actually, I would say most of the time, it's going to be something that's pretty counterintuitive because if it wasn't, then people would have thought of it already. Right, right. So so is that a skill you had to learn or is it something that temperamentally came to you really easily, you know, to be agnostic and not necessarily passionate about the idea, but rather the problem you had to solve? Or is that a lesson you had to learn, you know, hammered out on the anvil of experience? 
I don't know. I, I think it's, I don't know if it was really a specific lesson. I think it's just something that you just learn over time. There's very little correlation between how good an idea sounds and what actually ends up being a sustainable thing that customers care about. I mean, I think part of the thing that makes it counterintuitive or at least maybe more difficult for some people to bring about in their own behavior is that they feel driven by their passions, right? Like we get excited about a project and we get attached to the way we're going to do a particular project. And you're saying you got to learn to set that aside. So I guess I'm saying I'm not saying don't be passionate. I'd say be passionate about the customer and be passionate about solving the customer's problems. But don't necessarily get too attached to what your first thought of the solution might be for that problem because the solution to the problem might be something completely from left field that you haven't even thought of. And if you get too attached to one solution, you might not notice the other ones. Most of the time, you won't even get the answers from your customers in terms of what their problem is because their instinct is the same. They might not even realize they have this problem or they may realize it, but in their head they've already come up with the solution as well because they're too close to it. One of my favorite quotes, uh, actually I, I don't remember the exact quote, but I think it was Henry Ford back in the day, if you had asked customers, potential customers of the automobile before the automobile was invented, uh, what they wanted, they would probably tell you they wanted a faster horse. Right. So if you're too focused on how to make the horse faster, and even if you could double the speed, you would have the blinders on where you would totally miss the automobile. Who are the people you admire um, who are maybe heroes in this space um, and who you've drawn wisdom from? You know, the people who are really good at bringing ideas to life. And, and, and what qualities do they have that help them do that? Um, so I don't know him super well, but definitely Elon Musk is definitely inspiring. And why? Um, I think uh, it's a combination of things. One is, you know, all the things that he wants to do are very big vision. And the other reason is because he, he approaches things from a very first principles perspective, meaning that he kind of looks at what the building blocks are. For example, taking rockets to space. When he started, he didn't know a thing about rockets or space. And I don't remember how much it cost, to, I'm assuming billions of dollars to send a rocket to the moon or something. But then he started asking why and broke those down, like what is a rocket actually made of? And, and then he kept breaking it down into you know, fundamental components. And I think that's when he realized if you break it down, it shouldn't cost this much. And so he saw this huge opportunity to reinvent space stuff and not throwing the rocket away, but instead making it reusable because it's not like every time you get in a car, you, you wreck it and you have to buy a new one. Mm -hmm. You're obviously somebody who doesn't need to work. You, you could do pretty much what you want to do. Why do you keep coming to Zappos and working away on behalf of this company and its success? I mean, what motivates you and why are you driven to do the work you do here? Um, I know. I, th I think the stuff we're working on right now with market-based dynamics is super interesting. And for me, it's much bigger than just about Zappos. I think for Zappos, it's more we need to figure it out for ourselves first, and then we can expand what we're doing to include Amazon and other companies and you know, eventually the rest of the world. And 
you know, for me, I think everyone deserves being able to work on the intersection of what they're passionate about and what they're good at and what adds value to the company. And the current way most companies, most large companies are structured hierarchically is outdated. It doesn't work well. And I think for most employees of most large companies, they probably don't feel like they're doing what they're truly passionate about, or maybe their job description might be something that they enjoy, but they feel too constrained by the bureaucracy or things take too long and so on. And and I think there's a better way. I think the problem is with normal hierarchies, it's hard for someone with an idea to kind of run with it. They have to get approval from their manager and their manager's manager and all the way up the line. And in a typical corporation, all it takes is one no for an idea to get killed. Whereas what I'm excited about as we move towards market-based dynamics is every circle is a potential funder, or you can crowdfund uh, and do the equivalent of an internal Kickstarter. And if enough people believe in your idea, then you can take the next step towards making it a reality. And so instead of all it takes is one no to kill an idea, it's all it takes is one yes to take your idea to the next level. So you're excited and motivated to keep working at Zappos. Why? Um, I think just enabling everyone to be in an entrepreneurial type of environment, I, I think that's just naturally going to be rewarding. You know, Not everyone has been able to go through that, or even if they have gone through that, it's normally in a very small startup type of thing, which might have a lot more you know, perceived risk and, uh, and versus, I think, doing it within the context of, of Zappos and, and being able to interact with other Zappos teams while doing that and that are undergoing the same thing. I think that's, um, to me, it seems like it, it could be the best of both worlds. Okay, so it's an exciting and new way of running a company? Or rather than me running a company, it's hundreds of mini-CEOs all within Zappos. H have you thought about what Zappos might be like without you here? I, I mean, are you still here partly because you can steer the company in ways that few other people could steer it? I mean, is that part of what keeps you here? Well, I, I guess... If I had left, say, that back in 2009, right after the acquisition, then Zappos probably would have followed the path of the other subsidiaries that Amazon acquired, which was, they kind of rolled up to the parent company. And um, But one of the you know, preconditions we had was Zappos would remain independent and we'd have our own separate culture and way of doing business. And so I'd say that's the main reason why I'm still here. Has anybody ever questioned that arrangement? Like anyone at Amazon ever brought up the idea of rethinking this way that Zappos is able to operate? Uh, no, because uh, we've been delivering on our numbers just like we would be expected to if we were independent and had our and weren't part of Amazon, but we'd still have a board of directors. You know, this was something that Jeff Bezos personally agreed to, and we have a document called the Five Tenets document that outlines this. So uh, it's never come up. If anything, I'd say the only 
time there's been any tension about it is when there are new Amazon employees that are kind of lower down that weren't around in 2009. So we have to re-educate them on what happened back then. So as long as you make your numbers, you're free to have whatever wild experiments you want to have at Zappos, right? Yeah. Well, not just free to do it. They're looking to us. They know that we're innovating faster on uh, what they call management science side of things than they are. Uh, And part of it is because we're smaller and part of it is because we like to experiment more than they do in that area. And so their, their hope is once we figure stuff out for ourselves, then they can learn from us or we can have Amazon start adopting things on our platform. You are incredibly calm compared to most people, incredibly focused. And I'm wondering, is there anything that you would care to share with employees that keeps you up at night when it comes to Zappos and its future? I mean, are there things that worry you or trouble you or do you just not get worried? Yeah, I mean, I can't really think of anything that causes me to lose sleep. Um, I mean... There are definitely times when I wish things would move faster. And so that's more, I guess, impatience. But I know I I feel like there's a small group of us that have been building the tools and systems and and so on over the past couple of years for uh, MBD and... Market-based dynamics. Yep. And, uh, And so right now we're coming up to the... I'm so bad with sports analogies. What's the goal line? The touchdown? what happens? Is, you know, right before they're about to do the touchdown, the end zone. Uh-huh. No, I don't know. <laughs> Anyways, for 2019, uh, where we're transitioning to customer-generated budgeting, which is going to be kind of the first step that enables market-based dynamics. So uh, I feel like we're right at this exciting inflection point and. I'm excited to see what will happen a month or two from now. Okay, that's it for today's episode. Coming up next time, the story of an idea that didn't turn out exactly as planned. What's funny is a lot of people on my team were like, man, I think this isn't a good idea. And I was like, oh, it'll be great. (laughs) So I was even uh, ignoring my team a little bit, which uh, taught me a great lesson. This podcast would not be possible without help from Angel Sugg, Gene Markell, Jamie Naughton, Krista Foley, Dan Habel, Tyler Williams, Philip So, and Tony Shea. Our theme music was written and produced by Philip So and myself. I'm Adam Francis. Tune in next week for another edition of the Zappos Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Zappos DevShop One. DevShop One develops technology solutions for both Zappos and external businesses. For more information on how Zappos DevShop One can assist you in your business, email us at devshop at zappos.com.